Hello, friend. Welcome back to this Wayfarer Weekend Podcast, part nine in the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, where we are unpacking, really, for especially for people who maybe have never read the Bible, you know very little about it, You, you it's kind of confusing, maybe you never grew up in church or anything, and so you're just you're clueless and feel kind of bad about that. Don't feel bad. Uh, so we've been going through and just taking each section of the Bible, what I refer to as the great story that God is telling from the beginning in Genesis to the new beginning at the end of Revelation, and just trying to explain how it all fits together and a little bit of information about each section for those who maybe have never read it before and trying to figure out where might I dig in. So that's the whole idea. And we've been through uh, seven parts, uh, eight parts. We just, uh, last part, we finished the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Acts of the Apostles. And so today is part nine, what's known as the Epistles, which is just a old Greek word that means letters. So we're going to study the letters today, and then we get in part 10 to the, the climactic end that I'm sure everybody is waiting for, the revelation, the end times, the apocalypse, the prophetic finality, and we're going to talk about that and end our series there. Before we get into part nine today, uh, just a couple of uh, things to note. Uh, chapter day podcasts continue. In the book of Psalms, this ancient anthology of Hebrew song lyrics, and been having a lot of fun. Now, the the anthology of 150 songs is actually broken up into five different sections called the books. Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Uh, We finished book one, took a quick read of Peter's second letter, and then we went back to pick up book two where we are right now. So join us every weekday right here. And as always, text versions are available at the website, tombandrel.com. Please feel free to share podcasts and the blog posts if you would like or know somebody that think would uh, enjoy them. Schedule coming up, I do actually finally have some things on the calendar through the end of the year. I'm actually going to be in the auditorium uh, for my Pella peeps here in the coolest little town anywhere, Pella, Iowa. I will be in the Third Church Auditorium tomorrow at 11 a.m. And then on November 1, we'll be in the sanctuary. That's three services, 8, 9, 15, and 11, in the Third Church Sanctuary. And then back in the auditorium just 11 a.m. November 15th and January 3rd. So that's what's coming up. We're going to get to part nine of the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, the epistles, right after this. All right, as we get in today to part nine, the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, the epistles or the letters, because that's really what they are. So where we're at, and remember my the three words that have been the overarching themes of all of these parts, context, metaphor, 
and mystery. So when we get to the new, what's known as the New Testament, which is basically the things that have to do with Jesus and the early Jesus movement, that after Jesus came, that's known as the New Testament. Anything that happened before Jesus came kind of goes into the Old Testament. So now we're in the New Testament. We talked last time about the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, known as the Gospels, and then Luke's sort of account of the early Jesus movement, which is known as the Acts of the Apostles. As we get in now to these letters, it's important to understand context, because if you don't have context, they either, one, don't make a lot of sense, or two, are easy to take out of context, and then you get into all sorts of weirdness. The early Jesus movement. So let's go back to last time. Jesus came as part of the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people, going all the way back to Abraham, who gave birth to Isaac and the patriarchs, we learned about that uh, earlier in the series. And then Moses, who led the the Hebrews out of slavery, it gave them the law. They settled into the promised land. There was 12 tribes. They became a nation. So there's this Hebrew people that came from Abraham way back in the beginning in Genesis. So Jesus comes as the prophesied Messiah or deliverer or savior through the Hebrew people. So he was Jewish. He was born uh, in the city of David in Bethlehem because the Messiah had to come from the line of David, which is why there's a genealogy in the Gospels in in both Matthew and Luke, because they were establishing that, yes, Jesus was a descendant of David, because they every good Hebrew knew that the Messiah had to come from the tribe of David. So Jesus was Jewish. All 12 disciples were Jewish. But Jesus began right after he died rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he began a cultural revolution that was prophesied all the way back at the beginning. So when God called Abraham twice, he said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. And through your offspring, all nations, inclusive, all nations, all peoples, are going to be blessed. So it wasn't just about the Hebrew people. Even at the beginning, he said, through your offspring, all peoples are going to be blessed. Then when it came to the prophets, and we covered that in part seven, the Old Testament prophets talked about this time that was coming. Uh, Joel, in the second chapter of the prophet Joel, he talks about, God says, I am going to pour out my spirit on all flesh on all peoples. And it's really interesting because he says, I'm going to pour it out on men and women, on young and old. There is no distinction. I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone. And so there's already been established this notion that God is going to break out and is going to extend beyond the Hebrew people. Well, Jesus began that. So in the book of Acts, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, look, I am sending you. You're going to receive power, he tells his followers. And my spirit 
known as the Holy Spirit, is going to come upon you. And you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth and tell people about me and about my teachings. So he already established that this thing was going to break out of this relatively small Hebrew sect that had happened really within about a 50-mile radius of Jerusalem and Galilee. Now, one of the things that we need to understand is that Jesus radically challenged cultural norms. So when you think about what I just mentioned in the prophet Joel, the notion that God would pour out his spirit on all peoples and young, old, male, female That was a radical idea in Jesus' day because it was a very patriarchal society and Jesus really broke out of that. um, The Hebrew society at that time was very insular. They kept to themselves. Uh, It was very patriarchal and they also had a very high esteem for themselves and that they were God's chosen people. Therefore, they really looked down their noses at people that weren't genetically Hebrew and from the 12 tribes. Jesus was constantly pushing against that. Jesus spoke to women when it was not appropriate in his culture to speak to women. Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman when it wasn't culturally appropriate for him to speak to a woman in public, let alone a Samaritan who was a half-breed Hebrew and racially considered inferior to the pure-blood Hebrews. So Jesus was pushing against this. He was, he, and even in the early Jesus movement, it was really a cultural revolution. Jesus actually healed the son of, of a Roman centurion when it was politically and religiously unacceptable because the Romans, number one, they weren't Hebrews, and number two, they were the oppressors living in the land. And yet Jesus healed his son. Why? Because Jesus was already establishing that he was going to break out of this insulated uh, Hebrews-only little religious clique And he was taking God's love and God's spirit and God's power, and he was going global with it. So what happened then in the early Jesus movement is exactly what Jesus said. His spirit was poured out, and the early Jesus followers began meeting in homes. Now, they were persecuted because the Hebrews didn't like what they were teaching, and it was heretical to the culture and the power base and the institutions of that day. So the same Hebrew institution that executed Jesus because they they wanted to get rid of the competition and the things that he was preaching was going against their institutional racket that they had going and money-making scheme uh, that was covered over in the veneer of religion. So the early Jesus followers were persecuted. So what they did is they would meet clandestinely in homes, but when they meet together, men, women, Jews, non-Jews, which you need to understand, uh, the terminology was Gentile. If you were a Gentile to a Jew, you were a non-Jew. You, uh, again, you didn't belong. And so Jews, Gentiles, men, women, 
slaves, inferior social order, slaves and slave masters, slave owners. Everyone was treated as an equal in the early Jesus movement. And they began basically pooling their resources and making sure that everybody was taken care of. And this was radical. So radical that it gained attention. And especially among those marginalized people groups, they recognized there is something different about this Jesus movement. And it began to spread quickly. Thousands began to secretly meet and hear the teachings of Jesus and to follow. Now, for those who came out of the Jewish tribes, which is all 12 disciples, there was this giant cultural shift. I mean, it was cataclysmic. And it created all sorts of sticky questions. Because if you were Jewish, you had all sorts of rules and laws and traditions that you had to keep. There were only certain foods you could eat and certain foods you couldn't. If you were a Jewish male, you had to have the foreskin of your penis cut off. It's called circumcision. And so the Jews believed if you were going to become a Jew, you had to be circumcised, even if you were an adult which isn't a lot of fun for those who have to go through that. There were all sorts of rules that now we have these Gentiles, non-Jewish believers, many of them Greek and Roman, who begin to follow Jesus, but they aren't Hebrews, and they don't understand why they would have to become Hebrews to follow Jesus' teaching. And even among the Hebrew-Jewish followers of Jesus, there began to be a conflict. Are we going to be a sect of Judaism and make all of those who follow Jesus become Jews? Or is this a new thing that God is doing? So you need to understand that this was the biggest struggle in the first century of the Jesus movement. This question of Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. Now, the movement was loose, and it was fluid, and it was messy. I mean, thousands, tens of thousands began to follow Jesus, and it spread across the Roman Empire. Because as the early Jesus followers began to be persecuted by the Jewish establishment, what did they do? They left town, they spread out, they went north, they went to other cities in the Roman Empire, and they took with them the teachings of Jesus. And then Jesus' followers began to spring up in all of these other cities where groups would get together, they would meet in homes, they would have a meal together, they would share things, they would uh, worship in homes and they would have a feast, and everyone would share food, and they'd have a big potluck, and then they would teach the teachings of Jesus, and they would finish with this traditional metaphor that Jesus gave his followers of taking bread and wine and remembering that his body was broken for everyone, his blood was shed for everyone as a sacrifice for sin, 
and the way of redemption, and they would finish with this little ritual, and the Jesus movement began to spread. But it continued to be persecuted, and it continued to be clandestine. Both the Hebrews and the Romans rejected it. There was no handbook. There was no playbook. There was no business plan. This thing just took off. Now, because of that, it was messy, and it was susceptible to corruption. And whenever you start giving things away, and you start pooling your resources and giving away free food and making sure that everybody has their needs met, there eventually are going to be people who will come along and take advantage of the system. So the leaders of the Jesus movement began to write letters, because that was the only way you could communicate. And remember, if you wanted to travel to one of these cities where there are Jesus followers, you had to walk or take a chariot or take a boat ride across the Mediterranean. It was not easy. So the leaders, the best way they could communicate is by writing letters. So they would write letters to these fledgling little groups in different cities in different areas And then those letters would be read to the Jesus followers, and then they would be copied, and they would be sent to other towns where there are Jesus followers, and it would spread out from there. The letters were hand-copied. They were passed around. Now, it's important to understand the key players at this time, okay? Now, you've got Peter, who was really the undisputed leader of Jesus' 12 disciples, And Peter continues to be part of the thread of the story through the early Jesus movement. The other 10 disciples and then the 11th disciple, so when Judas betrayed Jesus, they actually filled his place with another guy, Matthias, who had been a Jesus follower for a long time, and he became sort of the uh, substitute for Judas, so they remained 12. And most of the 12 spread out as, just as Jesus said, and went to different areas and different countries of the world to take the teachings of Jesus. Peter remained fairly local in the Jerusalem area, and he spread out from there. He ended up in Rome, which is where he was killed. But Peter was a player. He was a leader. Then we have James. Now, just like today, we have people with the same name. There were actually a couple of Jameses that were important in the early Jesus movement. You have James that was the uh, brother of John, and Peter, James, and John were kind of Jesus' inner circle among the 12. But then Jesus had a brother named James. So after Jesus was born, and of course Luke tells the story, Mary you know, gets Gabriel comes, the angel comes, tells Mary that she is, she has conceived God's son through the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin. She'd been pledged to be married to Joseph. So she gives birth to Jesus, who was the Holy Spirit's child. But then she was married to Joseph, and they had more kids. And what's really interesting about that is that for a long time, the Roman Catholic Church uh, disputed this, and they taught that Jesus, no, 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 Mary remained a virgin the rest of her life. But it's right there in the Gospels, in the text, that <laughs> that they had other children after Jesus. And so James was 
the half-brother of Jesus, and he became a follower. And I've always said, look, man, for me, that's a testimony because (laughs) your brother knows everything about you. And if your brother says, yep, absolutely, my brother was the son of God, and he was the Messiah, and he rose from the dead, and I believe it, man, it had to have been true because brothers know the secrets (laughs) of their brothers. So to me, that's a... that stands the reason that, hey, the fact that Jesus' brother uh, became a leader in the Jesus movement uh, speaks volumes to me about the credibility of the Jesus movement. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, became the leader of the, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. Then you have this guy named Paul, St. Paul, and his story is told in the book of Acts and, you know, get into chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and you kind of get Paul's story. He began as Saul, and he was a radical, um, traditional, orthodox, zealous Hebrew. He was a lawyer and a teacher of the law. He had gone to the finest schools, and he hated the Jesus movement. He was put in charge of hunting down Jesus followers, putting them in prison, and making sure that if they could execute as many of them as possible. So Saul is on his way to Damascus, and he is going to find some Jesus followers and uh, put them in prison, prosecute them, maybe execute them. And all of a sudden, he's on his way, and there's this bright light that just blinded him. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared to him on the road and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And at that moment, Paul became a follower of Jesus. He goes to Damascus, he's blind, and from that moment forward, he becomes a follower of Jesus, and because he was an incredible uh, scholar, he was a lawyer, he knew the law of the Hebrews backward and forward, Paul became probably the most zealous and prominent follower of Jesus in the early Jesus movement. Now, Everyone was kind of like going, wait, this dude that was just seeking to put us in prison and oversaw the stoning of our our brother Stephen, and he's now one of us? Are you kidding me? This has got to be a trick. So imagine kind of the storyline there. But Paul becomes a really prominent leader within the early Jesus movement. So you've got Peter, you've got James, and you've got Saul, the prosecutor and persecutor who becomes Paul, the zealous follower. So these are the primary writers of the letters that we find in what is now called the New Testament. Now, sometimes they wrote to specific Jesus movements in specific locations to deal with specific issues. So the books uh, or the letters to the Corinthians. So there was a town called Corinth. Paul wrote multiple letters to the Jesus followers in Corinth. And we now have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The first letter, the second letter, there was another letter that got lost to history. And then sometimes they wrote to specific people. So the 
what's called the book of Philemon or Philemon is uh, Paul's writing to a specific person named Philemon. And then the books of First Timothy and Second Timothy were Paul writing to Timothy, who was a young man and who had been uh, an assistant to Paul. Timothy became the leader of a small group of Jesus followers. And so Paul was writing to Timothy with a specific purpose to help give him some wisdom as he is now a young man leading his own group of followers. Sometimes it was writing to all Jesus followers because they knew that these letters were being taken and hand copied and passed around. So Peter was writing to all the Jesus followers that were scattered around. James, again, James, the brother of Jesus, who was leader of the church in Jerusalem, he writes his book, the book of James, to, which was a letter to all the Jesus followers. So very early on, the Jesus movement began to accept that these letters by the apostles were authoritative, just like the law of the Hebrews and the prophets of the Hebrews. And in fact, in Peter's second letter, he talks about Paul's letters and he equates the letters of Paul to the Old Testament scriptures. So there was already an understanding that what the apostles were writing were accepted as authoritative scriptures for the Jesus movement. So now for the first 300 years, basically, of the Jesus movement, Followers of Jesus were persecuted. They were hunted down. They were hated, again, by both Hebrews and by the Roman Empire because they really pushed against cultural and religious norms. So if you're going to be a good Roman, you had to take an oath to Caesar and pledge that Caesar was this demigod, this divine person. Well, the Jesus followers wouldn't do that. So that was, seen as, that was seen as treason within the Roman Empire. So the Christians were persecuted. The Christians were un- misunderstood. So when they would have this love feast and they would remember what Jesus did by taking some bread and taking some wine and remembering this is Jesus' body broken for you. This is Jesus' blood shed for you. So it became known that the, the Jesus followers were cannibals that were eating flesh and drinking blood, didn't understand metaphor, which can one of the three words, metaphor, context, mystery. So the metaphors were misunderstood, and because they were misunderstood, the followers of Jesus were persecuted. But then, right after 300 AD, Christianity becomes, because of Emperor Constantine, becomes accepted within the Roman Empire. The persecution of Christians stops. And the leaders of the church at that point were finally able to safely, and without threat of being persecuted or thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or beheaded, had the opportunity to get together and start going through all of these letters that had been copied and recopied and passed around and used as the scriptures of the Jesus movement, they were finally able to sit down and say, okay, 
which ones are in and which ones do we have questions about. We need to establish some organization. So they had these councils where they would get together and the leaders from all over the known world would come together and they would debate and they would talk about it. And they ended up with the 27 books that we now have as the New Testament. So the selection process had basically three key criteria for acceptance into what's um, known as the canon. Canon just means sort of the accepted books of scripture. So one, they had to reflect uh, what was accepted as orthodox teaching that was consistent with the undisputed message of Jesus' first followers, the 12, the apostles. Paul was considered an apostle because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and and met with him personally and called him. So he was accepted into the claim of being an apostle of Christ. So what the original apostles, Peter and Paul, were these letters, did they follow the teaching of the apostles? Number two, they sought to include the earliest, most accurate accounts about Jesus in the early church by selecting things that were either written by the apostles themselves or those that were closely associated with them. And historically, over the 300 years, the leader said, no, yep. I mean, this was, this was accepted very early on as either the apostles' writing or somebody very close to the, to the apostles. And then third, Texts that were popular in only one area. So by that point, the Jesus movement had spread all over North Africa, all through uh, the Mediterranean and Europe, and even then east into, uh, into Asia. And so if there was a letter that was accepted in this one area, but it hadn't been widely accepted by everyone, then it tended to be rejected. And they looked for those letters and writings that had been widely distributed and widely held to be authoritative. So, but they made a decision. And that's really where the mystery comes in. Because the reality is, yes, it was human beings that decided on this, that these 27 books were going to be the authoritative writings, scriptures of the Jesus movement. And as the great story moves on, there are certain pieces of it that are just, it's part of the mystery of the great story. Why these? Well, there was reasons why they chose some and they didn't choose others. And there were other uh, letters and other writings that were accepted early on as important and gave people spiritual direction. But ultimately, the leaders of the Jesus movement said, no, they don't cut the mustard as reaching this threshold of being apostolic, of being early, and being accepted uh, as part of the core of Jesus' teaching. So as you begin reading the New Testament, it's important to understand the context because there are pieces of the context that are cultural. As you read the Corinthians, uh, books of First and Second Corinthians, you have Paul writing to this church that was struggling with all sorts of things that were cultural to that day. Do we, you know, should we take meat that was sacrificed to a Roman god? Because that's what they would do. They would butcher, a, sacrifice a bull uh, to one of the Roman gods, and then 
they would take that meat to the local market and they would sell it. So the early Jesus followers were struggling with, well, is it right for us to take this meat that's been offered to another pagan god and actually eat it? Or is that, uh, is that unacceptable? And there were people on both sides of the issue. So Paul was addressing that. You had people that were coming to the you know these home uh, meetings and they were overindulging. They were <laughs> going to the potluck and, and being gluttons, eating too much and then drinking too much wine and getting drunk. So by the time it came time for G- the teaching of Jesus and actually uh, participating in this ritual of the bread and the wine, remembering Jesus, people were drunk, which was unacceptable. And so Paul was writing to specifically address some of these issues. And some of those issues don't make a lot of sense to us today. So we have to understand the context in order to find the spiritual principles that are applicable to us today. It was a different time. It was a different place. And so there is this process by which we go and we read the letters and we understand the layers of meaning and we pray for wisdom that the Holy Spirit will take the principles, the spiritual principles of the words that were delivered and understand what they mean for us in the context of the 21st century. So that's the epistles. Now, where do you where do you begin if you wanted to read some of these? Um, you know, the there are a number of places that are good to jump in. The book of James, which is the only book written by uh, Jesus' uh, half brother, is has a lot of really good stuff that's very applicable, very wise, very um, you know, just some great wisdom for how to approach life, and so that's uh, a, a good one to start with. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, known as the book of Romans, he really lays out um, this transition from the Hebrew belief system to the Jesus belief system and how they, how the the Hebrew belief system is the foundation upon which Jesus came and that it wasn't throwing it out, it was building on top of it. And so it, trying to understand the teaching of the early church, that can, that can, uh, you can learn a lot from reading Paul's letter to the Romans. So yeah, and as always, as I mentioned with the Gospels, it's um, you know a good study Bible uh, is a, a great resource because as you begin reading each letter, there's usually some introductory that tells you about who wrote it, what the purpose was, the, the context in which it was written, which can be very helpful. And then obviously there's always footnotes that kind of explain um, some detail and context to the actual letter and the things that are being said within the letter. And that can always be helpful for somebody that is coming to it brand new. So my friend, I hope that you will wade in and read some of it for yourself and open your heart and your mind to whatever God might want to yeah, bring into your life. Uh, through these ancient writings that have meant so much to so many for so many centuries. Next, our final our final episode of the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story is going to be the next Wayfarer Weekend podcast. 
the apocalypse, revelation, the end times, uh, weird stuff, surreal. It's like Salvador Dali of scripture. Thanks for joining us on the Wayfarer Weekend podcast. Have a great week. And I would like to just leave you with this blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Take care, friend. Thank you.